Computer, initialize Holosuite. Hi everyone, this is the Sci-Fi Feminist bringing you a special episode for your weekend listening on Raya and the Last Dragon, which is the latest Disney movie. I recently watched it at the recommendation of one of my friends and I thought it would be fun to have a look at it as a feminist text or through a feminist lens. So in today's episode, um, it's not going to be long, but I just wanted to look at some stereotypes, some ways in which the female characters are portrayed and represented, etc. Uh, today I'm also going to look at something called the Bechdel test. Um, it's quite fun and I thought it would be good to look at this Disney movie through that, eye, through that uh, lens. I'm also going to briefly talk about some of the other recent Disney movies um, because there's definitely been a change in the way that female characters or princesses are represented in Disney movies. So I hope you really enjoy this episode. I'm just doing this one for fun. And um, I will try to bring you one of these special episodes at least once a month. If there are other Disney movies specifically that you would like me to look at, then you can let me know in the comments or drop me uh, a message on any of the social media platforms and I'll be really happy to, um, to look at that. If you're listening on YouTube, please uh, click the subscribe button because this girl needs to eat. And um, yeah, I hope that you enjoy today's episode. Also, this episode is going to be filled with spoilers, so I'm not even going to do the spoiler thing. Um, please just watch the movie first <laughs> if you don't want to uh, have any spoilers. So the first thing is, of course, that in the movie we have two heroines. Uh, both are really strong, both are desexualized, both are able to fight and both play a really important role in the film. Um, secondary to them is also the female dragon and of course Namari's mother, the chief. So this whole movie is filled with a bunch of pretty powerful women that drive the plot and that move everything forward. Now, although that may be a good thing, of course it is, but there are other subtleties that I would like to explore that might not be as progressive as Disney makes it out to be. But first, let's look at all the positive aspects in terms of feminism of this movie. So the first thing I would like to look at is the Bechdel test, which I mentioned a bit earlier. So the Bechdel test was created by Alison Bechdel, and it's basically used to measure the representation of women in fiction. So first of all, it asks whether work features at least two women who talk to each other about something other than a man. And then another requirement is that the two women must be named. I know it seems like a pretty straightforward thing, but you would be surprised how many movies feature women that first of all don't have names and that only talk about men. Obviously it has improved a lot over the years, but this was actually a thing and it still happens sometimes in movies. You might be surprised to know that Finding Nemo, Jack Reacher, Toy Story, Up, Fast and the Furious and Shawshank Redemption don't actually pass the Bechdel test. Uh, movies that do is Mad Max Fury Road, which was very progressive and I think I'll definitely do another episode on that later. Also The Hunger Games, also a pretty progressive uh, movie and also Silence of the Lambs. 
This was released in the 80s already, which makes that pretty impressive too. If I'm thinking back, uh, Alien and Terminator and Star Trek Voyager would probably also pass the Vectile test. This is something someone has asked me on Reddit, so I thought it would be good to cover it in today's episode. There was this really funny Rick and Morty episode where they talk about the Bechtel test, and um, I would like to play the sound clip from that for you so that you can get an idea about how ridiculous it actually is. So here is from Rick and Morty. in a story proposed by lesbian cartoonist Allison. What the hell are they teaching you in that school? Other stuff! Then you've killed us both! Why is lesbian part of her job title? Oh, now you're progressive? What is the test? You have to tell... <laughs> Morty. Morty. Two women. They both have to have names and talk to each other about something... Rick! Other than a man. Oh, Rick, listen to me! Once upon a time, my mom and my sister, listen to me! Mom, can I try your tea? Yes, Summer. Yes. Try my tea. It's so good. It's so warm. Mom, can I talk to you about my special time? It's okay. I have one too. Mine is heavy today. Mine is never light. I love you ever since you were mailed to me by a doctor woman. Your special time is your power. It makes you strong like a boob. Strong against what? Scorpions. Female scorpions. They're attacking outside. Come on. Fight them with your heavy special time. You do it too. Hello? I'm that Supreme Court lady, and you f***ing did it. We, we did, did it. it. Okay, so uh, yeah, that's what happens in Rick and Morty. I really laughed a lot when they did that. So yeah, that is the Bechtel test. So does Raya and the Last Dragon pass the Bechtel test? Definitely it does. We have two female protagonists and there are actually very few men that feature in the movie. There are of course some prominent ones. Interestingly, uh, one of them is a young boy and um, these two women, rarely talk about the other male characters or about men in general. So yes, that is it for the Bechtel test and Raya and the Last Dragon. So let's move on to the next aspect of it, which is ecofeminism. Ecofeminism is a kind of a part of French philosophy that's been developing since like the 90s already, the 1990s or even late 80s. Uh, we see that cultural feminism is kind of the predecessor for ecofeminism. What ecofeminism basically does is it draws upon the concept of nature to talk about women's oppression. So ecofeminists would suggest that just as humankind and especially men have kind of exploited the world, nature and the earth, um, that is kind of an apt metaphor for women's exploitation by men as well. Now that's not the only facet of it, but that is like a really broad explanation or definition for ecofeminism. It's been accused of essentialism, which means that it suggests that certain characteristics are inherent to women, such as care, nurture, 
giving birth um, since ecofeminism kind of equates woman to nature. Now there's this age old thing about mother nature and that women are closer to the earth and therefore more primitive and therefore not logical, rational, all those types of problems. So ecofeminism, like many other branches of feminism, has also run into some problems. For ecofeminism specifically, it is regarding this notion of essentialism because at the end of the day, it equates women to nature. Now, I've read a very interesting eco-feminist analysis of Moana, which kind of suggested that um, that provides a really good uh, theoretical framework for reading Moana. So Moana is also a Disney princess, and she's also quite progressive. She's not like the other Disney princesses. Uh, she doesn't have that trope of damsel in distress, None of that that we see in the really early Disney movies, and I will talk about that now as well. But in Moana, we basically see, first of all, the consequences of our exploitation of nature, which is that everything on our island starts to die. And then how this really young heroine goes on a quest to return the heart of the goddess Tefiti that was stolen by the demigod Maui. And then when the heart of the goddess is returned, then all of the nature also returns and everything kind of goes back to normal. Now, this explicitly links women with nature. In an eco-feminist reading, this is quite subversive because it suggests that women and only women have this regenerative and restorative power that the goddess Tefiti has, and also that Moana has by going on this quest and returning the heart of Tefiti. So I was quite um, shocked when I saw this similar theme is explored in Raya and the Last Dragon. Again, we see that because of humankind's discord, the fact that people keep fighting, and in brackets, the fact that men keep fighting, although this is a bit more complex, uh, for reasons I will look at later. But uh, because of humanity's fighting, um, the peace in nature is also destroyed. And then again, by the end of the movie, after returning the orb, or after fixing the orb and gaining trust and putting it all back together, then all of nature is restored again. I also thought it was quite interesting that many of the dragons have these... Um, powers that are related to nature, like uh, the dragon Sisu, who uh, is the water dragon and who can control the water, and then some of her sisters that also controlled other elements. Um, also when Sisu dies, then all the water dries up. So once again, we see this link with women and with nature, and um, in an eco-feminist reading, again, this Disney movie would be quite subversive and quite good then because at the end of the day it is because of two women or actually three because of the dragon as well that uh, everything is restored again although they did receive help from uh, the baby the what's it the con baby and also the two other guys and uh, animals too so interesting uh, about ecofeminism too this is also another facet of it is that it talks about this idea that we should not um, overpower nature or control nature, but rather live in harmony with it. 
Now, once again, at the end of this movie, we see that happening again. But also this really special bond that she has with her pet Tuk-Tuk. Uh, they have a kind of relationship that is give and take. She does not just use him or treat him as a pet, but he's actively involved in what she does and she's actively involved in what Tuk-Tuk does. And also um, the monkeys too. So we see here too a heroine that works together with animals uh, that does not just objectify them, but that treats these animals as subjects too. So again, in an eco-feminist reading, this would be quite good and quite subversive because we see this heroine that is one with nature, that works in harmony with it, and whose ultimate goal is to restore nature that was disrupted because of human beings, <laughs> or in brackets, uh, eco-feminists would say, because of men or mankind. So yes, that would be a really brief eco-feminist reading of Ryan the Last Dragon. So moving on to the next thing, uh, I would like to quickly talk about the trope of Disney princesses. So this is a well-known fact that older Disney princesses probably would not have passed the Bechdel test and because it was always about the prince and their whole lives was just about getting the prince, getting married, and at the end of the day, having their happily ever after. Now, I'm talking about Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Snow White, all of those Disney princesses from the past. They also fell into that damsel of distress trope quite a lot, where they would need to be rescued by the prince on many occasions. Now, those Disney princesses have recently been replaced by newer ones and ones that are quite different and more subversive. So I'm talking about the girls from Frozen that has become very popular, especially among young kids. And these representations are really important because young girls watch these things and then they think that this is what normal femininity looks like. So representation is very important. So um, yes, Frozen changed that for me a little bit to focus more on the relationship between two girls, between two sisters. Although there are some romantic interests that are not, that's not the focus of the movie. That's why I say it's a bit more progressive. Also Moana that I talked about just now. And also Wreck-It Ralph. We have this tomboyish heroine, Princess Vanellope. And there was a very interesting exchange between her and these older Disney princesses in Wreck-It Ralph 2 that I think was quite meaningful. So what happens in that scene Penelope is being looked for by a bunch of stormtroopers from Star Wars. I really quite enjoyed that Easter egg. And then she stumbles across the princess room. So in this room, she meets all of the other Disney princesses. And in their conversation with her, they kind of expose all the tropes that they perpetuate. And they kind of debunk these tropes and they kind of reveal just how ridiculous it all is. So here is a clip from that exchange for you. I can explain. Say, um, 
Uh, I'm a princess, too. Wait, what? Yeah, Princess Vanellope Von Schweetz of the uh, Sugar Rush Von Schweetzes. I'm sure you've heard of us, so it'd be embarrassing for you if you haven't. <laughs> huh. What kind of a princess are you? What kind? Do you have magic hair? No. Magic hands? No. Do animals talk to you? No. Were you poisoned? No. Cursed? No. Kidnapped or enslaved? No. Are you guys okay? Should I call the police? And I have to assume you made a deal with an underwater sea witch where she took your voice in exchange for a pair of human legs? No. Good <gasps> lord, who would do that? Have you ever had true love's kiss? Ew, barf! Do you have daddy issues? I don't even have a mom. Neither do we. And now for the million-dollar question. Do people assume all your problems got solved because a big, strong man showed up? Yes! What is up with that? She, she is, is a princess! princess. <laughs> okay, so that is the exchange between Vanellope and the other Disney princesses. So we see that they really highlight all the problematic aspects of these princesses and also how Vanellope is different from them. Interesting there is that all of them say that they don't have a mom and that is another age-old trope that perpetuates the idea of a patriarchal lineage rather than a matriarchal one. Unfortunately, in Raya and the Last Dragon, she also doesn't have a mom, which I don't know why that's a trope, but again it emphasizes that she got her heroic qualities from her father and not from her mother, which in my view is quite problematic because it really excludes her mother's impact on her life and it kind of makes it seem like all of that this heroine is doing is carrying out her father's wish that he wanted to do in the first place and that is exactly what Raya does she kind of just fulfills the dream that her father had for Kumandra this isn't only the case for Disney heroines, but we see it in many other franchises too. Tomb Raider is one of them. Um, in the older Tomb Raider games, if you play video games, we also see that father-daughter lineage, and she's again basically just carrying out her father's quests or completing his quests. So unfortunately, Disney could have done a bit better there. That brings me to the next point, which is Disney's tendency to villainize older women. Now again, if you look at the older Disney princess movies like Cinderella, Snow, Be Snow White and Sleeping Beauty, I almost said Snow Beauty <laughs> and Sleeping White. Anyway, we always see in the older Disney movies, in the animations, that older women are villainized. They are often the evil stepmom or an evil witch or they are some sea witch or maleficent that turns into a dragon and they are generally just really bad they are usually juxtaposed with the good mother uh, the biological mother who is usually silent we don't see her much and she's either dead or she doesn't talk a lot so that is basically the extent to which older women are represented in disney movies I'm going to talk a bit about Maleficent because recently she underwent a change. So in the Maleficent animation, the original Disney animation um, of Sleeping Beauty, we see that Maleficent pitches up at the christening of the girl, probably because she's jealous of Queen Aurora. And so then she curses her to die on her 16th birthday by being pricked by a needle. Um, Maleficent also pitches up and curses the princess 
apparently because she wasn't invited to the christening. Uh, that doesn't make any sense, but somehow that makes sense in this old Disney movie. Um, anyway, if you've seen the more recent Maleficent movies, this has changed quite a lot. We see that Maleficent, portrayed by Angelina Jolie, she develops this maternal love for the princess. And even though she does curse her, and she doesn't curse her because of being jealous or because she wasn't invited to the christening, but actually because she was betrayed by King Stefan, who she loved. So we see that kind of male betrayal and also that theme of rape kind of comes out because he forcefully takes her wings from her, which is arguably a metaphor for her femininity. So because of that, she curses the princess, which I think is a totally legitimate reason to do it. Anyway, she then develops maternal feelings for the princess and then on her 16th birthday, she actually tries to save the princess and she tries to revoke the curse. And I really loved this part the most, is that true love's first kiss is not from the prince, but it is from Maleficent herself. We see that maternal bond. So what makes this so subversive is that when we look at Maleficent, there is emphasis on this mother-daughter relationship between Maleficent and the princess. So this idea of the dead mother or the Disney trope that mothers don't feature Yes, um, Princess Aurora's biological mother is out of the picture in the movie, Maleficent, but Maleficent becomes her mother. And then in the second uh, movie, the second Maleficent movie, we actually see that Aurora calls Maleficent her mother. So I really like that and I really thought that was quite subversive because it subverts that um, trope that mother-daughter relationships are not important and that the daughter just kind of carries on the father's dream or vision or mission so yes that's it for maleficent and then also we see a much more nuanced representation of older women in maleficent she's not just evil or bad or anything like that but her evilness or her badness is justified and it's kind of given a reason. Um, we know that the reason why she becomes like that is not because she's inherently evil because she's an older woman that can do magic, but because she was betrayed by men or by Stefan or by patriarchy in a broader sense. So yes, that's it about Maleficent. Back to Raya and the Last Dragon. So how are older women portrayed in Raya and the Last Dragon? Unfortunately here, Disney also didn't do a great job at this. Um, this kind of seems to erase everything that they did well in Maleficent. So first is Namari's mother, that is Raya's main antagonist, Namari's, uh, Namari, and then her mother, the blonde woman. Um, we see this kind of representation of evil, evil older femininity. She kind of spurs her daughter on to steal the orb and um, to betray the people and she's not really shown in a good light. Only towards the very end she kind of accepts other people but throughout she's kind of shown as this evil older woman without much nuance. Then there's also the old lady in Talon, the chief. Um, the, the fire bearer tells Raya that this is the most vicious chief, chief that Talon has ever seen. And then the shot 
moves to the old lady and then this old lady tries to kill the dragon so yes that is also not good <laughs> i think um disney could have done a better job here at trying to represent older women so i think this will bring me to the final point now uh, when we look at female friendships so there is another trope that women in disney movies but also in many other movies too they are portrayed as kind of competing with each other especially if it's two beautiful women or two women of the same like standing in the movie um, or the same how can i say on the same level we rarely see that they are friends but they are usually enemies and women are always pitted against each other which i think is really problematic because it doesn't show many positive representations of female friendship on screen now of course this is not the case for all movies for example in the latest star trek series called star trek discovery there are quite a few good female friendships between the crew members in terms of Disney movies, I can only really think of Maleficent that shows a positive friendship between Maleficent and her female, uh, her adopted daughter. Unfortunately, the second Maleficent movie again puts two powerful women against each other. So I think this is a trope that Disney really struggles to break apart from. And this is quite basic, so I don't know why this still happens in movies in 2021, but Anyway, uh, Ryan the Lost Dragon 2 kind of pits against each other, these two female heroines. In the beginning of the movie, when they were hanging out together before Namari betrayed Rhea, Raya, I was thinking like, oh yeah, this is great. We're going to see two women team up together to beat the evil. And then a few minutes later, we see how Namari betrays Raya. And throughout the whole movie, they are pitted against each other. So uh, that was a negative part about the movie in terms of feminist representation and um, another part where I think Disney could have done a little bit better. So yes, in terms of feminism, I think those are the major themes in the movie. And um, I hope you really enjoyed this episode on feminism and Raya and the Last Dragon. As we can see, representation is not just about presenting a heroine that's desexualized and that passes the Bechdel test and that can fight and save herself and fight the evil, but there are many other aspects that play a role. Anyway, I really hope you enjoyed this episode and if you really like it, then please hit the like button and subscribe to my YouTube channel or follow on any of the podcast sites. And then I will do another special episode like this again next month or whenever another significant movie comes out. So yes, thank you for listening. This is the Sci-Fi Feminist signing off and live long and prosper. Bye-bye. This show is brought to you by Sweet Media. Computer, list other available Sweet Media programs. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, The Janeway, a Star Trek Voyager podcast. And it wouldn't surprise me in the sex cabin if the table's wonky, because the amount of times that oh. Aaron Tom's probably jumped on there, it's yeah, probably sticky. damaged it. Oh! <laughs> you know that table's sticky. Oh! Suzanne! <laughs> it's in the sex cabin! It's it's a table not just for pool balls. <laughs> it's a table not just for pool balls. No. no. Yeah, the the thing the scary thing is is you don't know.
for sure what that sticky is. Because mm. nobody's going to test it. Nobody. <laughs> Nobody. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, The Expanse, an Enterprise podcast. Trip's able to get that taken care of in, in a couple hours, because I think he had also had to realign the, the warp coils a little bit to, to get it to, to work. Back on the uh, the Bird of Prey, Soong tells him that he's going to take them to, to the Briar Patch. I'm not even going to attempt to call it or, you know, pronounce it in its original Klingon at this point. <laughs> uh, um, lazy, lazy. Well, you Lacking know. commitment. <laughs> <laughs> Computer, deactivate Holosuite.